Broadcasting live from the Great Northern in beautiful Twin Peaks, Washington, I'm Matt. I'm Caroline, and this is an episode-by-episode breakdown and discussion of all three seasons of Twin Peaks. If your llama or minor bird needs emergency veterinarian care, or you're just looking for a recipe for diet lasagna, this is a podcast for you. Today, we're going to be talking about episode five, The One-Armed Man. Spooky! <laughs> what is that? Who? What? Is there a ghoul behind you? What? Oh, I can just hear, I hear someone like messing with the pipes. It sounds like there's like it's a ghoul. because I'm in a basement and there are pipes. I. This is a bad room for them to have put a recording studio in, but it is free, so. I can't believe my carpet got molded. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so for an update of all of the things that have gone wrong in Matt's life today, because that's what this podcast is now. My car is dead. I'm just going to cut this bit, but... <laughs> what, you don't want our listeners to know that you spend 95% of your time complaining? <laughs> no, I mean, they know that. Well, so on that note, I, uh, I've decided I don't want this to just be a Twin Peaks fan cast. You know, I want this to be a critical evaluation of it. So I'm not, I'm not just going to go easy on it. You don't. <laughs> I don't, and I, 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 but I'm... I'm I'm recommitting to that ideal, but I did say that I was gonna uh, do my research on this one. So this one was directed by Tim Hunter, and it was written by Robert Engels, who it looks like actually did a lot of work on Twin Peaks writing as well as Firewalk with Me. So there are actually some really cool fun facts about this episode. First of all, that yeah, Engels came on to do a lot of the stuff, and uh, Mark Frost felt that his sense of humor would really fit the series' style, and that apparently he found the writing really, really fast-paced, and that Lynch and Frost would hash out scripts for structure, like outlines for episodes in, uh, like, a couple hours. Oh, wow. So, this is the first episode, and we'll get to this, where we see, uh, we hear, actually, Gordon Cole, and Engels having experience with his own mother being hard of hearing, sort of wrote a lot of this character's dialogue because David Lynch, he just wanted to deliver all his lines very loudly. So he worked backwards to figure out a reason that he would have to do that. I'm looking at the the production section of the Wikipedia page, but it has uh, Mayberry RFD as one of what Engels sent, said was like one of the largest influences on the series as a whole. Well, if, if uh, for you film buffs out there, Tim Hunter's direction was apparently inspired by Odo Preminger's uh, 1945 film Fallen Angel. It's probably Otto, isn't it? Yes, yes, probably. I don't know. Well, basically, if you if you want this information, but better, just go read the Wikipedia article like we're doing right now. Huh. Okay. I need to close out of the Mayberry RFD Wikipedia page, though, because... We could just do that podcast. I would totally do that, but I feel like you would probably not enjoy watching a spinoff of the Andy Griffith show. Yeesh. No. You know, I like, I'm just going to stop. We're going to move on to the episode. Yeah, can we talk about the, the show that we're actually talking about now? Yeah, so the opening shot of this episode after what I think we both identified as odd-looking credits, I think they might be slightly different. The waterfall shot was different, I think. Different and yeah. longer. I feel like they listed more of the cast. So they had to extend the waterfall. Mm. That's my suspicion. There was a lot of sepia toning that I hadn't seen before. Mm. Uh, we open on the Palmer house. <coughs> Sorry, that's going to be a problem. Oh no. Yeah, if it sounds like I'm sick, it's because I am. Mm. Carry on. 
one of our uh, oh boy. Here we one go. of our fantastic uh, patrons here at the Great Northern had a cold, and while Caroline was uh, you know bringing up some bags, germs got exchanged. Do you remember to wash your hands? Anyway, starting the episode, we're gonna do this. Jesus, maybe. Maybe eventually we'll get there. <laughs> Time is a flat circle, as uh, Rust Cole from season one of True Detective says. So this is the podcast where we talk about literally every show except Twin Peaks. Yeah, so my, again, I, I'm I'm getting out of the way. I really like True Detective season one. I think you've reviewed True Detective on this podcast no! already. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Well, that's embarrassing. So the opening shot is on the Palmer House. <laughs> I've been watching Umbrella Academy. I haven't read the comic. It's okay. It's kind of, it's Wes Anderson meets X-Men is what I've decided. We'll see where it goes. I don't know. It could, it could flop hard, but um, yeah, we open on the Palmer house. Jesus. It's, I feel like after seeing that same house, but in its far more dilapidated state in the most recent season, I really love this exterior shot now. It's just so, it's so foreboding and it shows up a lot in Fire Walk With Me Too, I feel like. Uh, because it's so centered on Laura. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the Goonies house. To, like, it's just such an iconic little filming location. But it's just an average just an average house. Yeah, it always looks kind of different to me. I feel like just the shot is always from different angles. Yeah, they, they do funny funny things with like the space and, and how getting it to look like it's its own little estate almost. Um, yeah. Yeah, so you have a forensic sketch artist. Is it not a forensic sketch artist? It's just Andy. Oh, is it? Yeah. Hey, he's a good artist then. Yeah, no. Maybe that's why maybe that's why Andy is on the police force. That's a hundred percent why he's on the police force, because yeah, he's otherwise useless. <laughs> completely, completely unqualified. Yeah, okay. So Andy, forensic sketch artist, is drawing uh, what appears to be Bob, uh, the man that we have seen now in, in Sarah Palmer's visions and in Cooper's visions, and Sarah is describing him. They're in the Palmer House and Donna, Maddie. Truman and Leland are all there. I'm not. I'm not sure why Donna is there. Well, Donna was there when Sarah Palmer had the vision. Okay. Maybe okay. That's ostensibly why. Corroborating evidence. They want yeah witnesses. Okay. Leland kind of like makes fun of Sarah almost. Blows her off and is like yeah. she's oh, she's been having these visions. Yeah, he's uh, really sarcastic about it, which is interesting. Yeah. It's because he's just like very biting and sarcastic in that scene, and like does not have a lot of patience for her. Yeah, he looks disheveled. His hair's kind of, like, up and messy. Yeah. But I, li- I like it, though, because we've had previous scenes, both at the funeral and, I think, when, he- when he's dancing, of her coming in and kind of, like, yelling at him, like, knock it off, you're losing it. It was kind of, it was, I liked that it was, they turned it back. Now he's kind of kind of doing the same thing to her. Yeah, he's a little um, more normal in this scene. Um, but, yeah, so then she keeps going and she talks about Bob, she says he looks like an animal, um, which I think was something that we both, like, talked about when we were talking about that scene, was that he is very, like, animalistic, and just the way that he's, like, crouching. And then she talks about the necklace, too, right? Yeah, she actually describes the scene at the end of the pilot episode where someone digs up the locket, and I really like that because she she wakes up, right? No, it just goes, it goes right Mm. to credits. It goes to credits over that scene. You're right. It's interesting, though, because it kind of implies that that... Um, so then, yeah, that was a vision of that hers. That was a vision of her. So that okay. scene that we saw was a vision of Sarah's that we were seeing. We weren't just watching the necklace get dug up. I guess I'm thinking of a different scene where Sarah Palmer has a vision and startles awake, which happens a lot in the show, I feel like. Yeah. But, yeah, so then in that case, I actually like this even more, because then, uh, even without like some dumb visual cue, it is unclear going forward now like what other people are seeing, what's vision, what's reality. It complicates it. Yeah, and it complicates like what parts of the show are 
from Sarah's point of view mm-hmm. rather than just kind of an omniscient, like disembodied, like point of view of the camera. Um, what else? I feel like it does. It, then, then you sort of think about the scenes later on where it's just sort of surreal Black Lodge stuff unconnected to anyone, and you're left going like, okay, but did someone in Twin Peaks like have this dream as well? Yeah, did like, somebody see that? And, and we just and we just don't know about it. like. Yeah, because we see things throughout the show that Sarah sees that nobody else does. Well, so then we cut back to Invitation to Love. Invitation to Love. So now we have to, we have to cut to our mini-series, Invitation to Listen. I also want to point out that every time that you send me the show notes, it comes up in my Gmail as Invitation to Edit. <laughs> <laughs> so there's many layers here. So we see Emerald trying to seduce a very sweaty Chet, yeah. a man who appears to have been born without a neck. But... <laughs> Chet's married to her sister. Uh, and then and then there's a little sort of a comedic beat where, where Truman walks up and he's like, Lucy, what's going on? And Lucy explains the plot of the episode. And it turns out, I was listening to this, that uh, the previous episode we covered an invitation to listen. You saw a character writing out a suicide note and it was paired with Leland and, and then Maddie showing up. But in this, she actually mentions that Jared, I think that's the name of the character, decides not to kill himself and changes his will. So there's actually, there is continuity across episode to episode within the show, kind of. Yeah, and then Lucy is mad at Andy for yeah. an unclear reason. I like this, though. I don't know, the Andy and Lucy, like, plot just kind of, it makes a certain amount of sense, I guess, given their characters. So, yeah, so then Jacoby is in the conference room. Yeah, to be interrogated by Coop, but he's just sitting there doing magic tricks with golf balls. Yeah. And I guess I guess Russ Tamblin had just learned this magic trick and wanted to do it, so this was not actually written into the thing. He just improvised this bit. I like it, though. It's It feels right for the character. Yeah, it was a good act, too. I was impressed. Russ Tamblin's got some sleight of hand skills. Coop starts to interrogate him about him seeing Laura, and Jacoby's kind of doing the doctor-patient confidentiality thing. Yeah. Coop asks if Laura's problems were of a sexual nature, and Jacoby goes, the problems of our entire society are of a sexual nature, which, fair. Yeah, I mean, I was like, all right, Jacoby. Like, they're trying to paint him as weirdo hippie man, but I was like, yeah, I mean, like... He's he's read some Foucault. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hashtag Jacoby was right. So Jacoby sees Coop's map of Tibet, and he pops up, and he starts talking about ginger being used to alleviate sexual tension. He's, he's kind of trying to do some mystic mumbo-jumbo at Coop, who we know is into a little bit of that mystic mumbo-jumbo too, but Coop shuts him down and just basically wants to know if Jacoby knows anything about Laura's death and if he was one of the people that slept with her on the night of her murder. And he says no, but he did follow someone in a red Corvette. And it just so happens that once he leaves, Truman reveals that Leo Johnson drives a red Corvette. And just then, we get a call in from Gordon Cole. Coop, he's got some news for him. Gordon is the director of the FBI? The whole thing. The whole thing? He's the director of Coop's unit division i don't know how the fbi works neither does david lynch really no neither does david lynch clearly david lynch of course plays gordon cole i don't know when we actually get to see him in person it's a while yeah we hear two calls from gordon cole across the course of this episode gordon cole is the director of blue rose maybe yeah anything beyond that is one of the weird things about twin 
the show anything beyond the confines of the town is extremely nebulous like even in you never see other locations ever except in the movie yeah but even then like the encounter with gordon cole is very strange and like in a way i liked it the rest of the world doesn't seem to exist outside of the town it fits in that weird idea of this is sort of a place apart from the world coop or cole so many c names uh gordon cole calls in to give coop the good news and the bad news the good is that they have gotten some more uh, forensic evidence after albert's investigation on laura and it turns out that the markings were bird bites which bird bites yeah i guess bird pecks doesn't sound right very official yeah so but... it's got a bunch of bird hickeys um Ew. and uh Gordon Cole also brings up the uh, the little conflict between Albert and Truman, but Coop gets mad and hangs up on him. Albert's jealous of Coop's new boyfriend is how I've decided to read this scene. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. It's it is weird though that Coop, despite being such like a Boy Scout, also seems to be a little bit flippant about authority. Because I think it's like a personal moral code, right? Like he thinks that Truman was like morally correct in that situation because albert was being a dick no i guess i mean yeah it's just i think it's funny that he's i guess he's in a position of such good job security that he can just hang up on his boss like that it is interesting that coop is like so loyal to truman so quickly Mm -hmm. over like albert who he has presumably like been working with for much much longer yeah new boyfriend i guess yeah yeah Right after he hangs up, they uh, Andy brings in his sketch of Bob, and Cooper confirms that this is also the man that he saw in his dream. But his eyes were a little close together, and people seem to be willing to take this at just kind of straight up face value. Well, yeah, and I mean at this point, like, right, it does seem significant that like Coop and Sarah Palmer both saw the same guy in separate dreams, like. I would imagine, like, if I was a normal police investigator, I would imagine that I would still be like, huh, like, you must have both seen this guy somewhere. Oh, okay, yeah, I was thinking that. So. Also, Coop says he's a strong sender. A strong sender. (laughs) Which, all right, Coop. (laughs) I know, I start to worry that, I don't even know why I start to worry, I should just be worried that, I like to joke, yeah, I'd love to, like, get a beer with, with Cooper, but you know what, he'd be talking about, like, weird astrology stuff, and, like, alternative medicine and i just i would not be able to like no you you would not get along with dale cooper no oh that's disappointing he's cheerful and believes in various higher powers he is like your antithesis Mm. who would i get along with in twin peaks probably jerry yeah later jerry yeah old, (laughs) old jerry Jerry Shippuden for all you Naruto fans out there. All the all the Naruto fans who listen to our podcast. Yeah, all like mathematically point oh oh three of them. <laughs> so they go the one armed man has been found. Yeah, so Hawk at, Hawk calls and says yeah. he's found the one armed man at a hotel or a, a motel, I guess. So yeah, so they go to the motel 
Josie is there spying on Catherine and Ben. Yeah. Who have also shacked up in the motel, and they are, well, Catherine's massaging Ben, and they're scheming about the ledgers. And they're also drinking wine, which, like, is it not, like, 11 a.m. at this point? Or is it afternoon? If it is 11 a.m., you really think that Catherine and Ben Horn aren't going to drink wine at 11 a.m. while they're shacked up in, like, the Timber Falls Motel? Fair enough. We've both been to the Timber Falls Motel. We know what happens there. Speak for yourself. Not together. That wasn't the implication. We've been there separately, but not for the bad things. <laughs> Just going to let you dig yourself out of this hole. <laughs> so they go up to the door of where this one-armed man, Mr. Gerard, mm-hmm. is supposedly staying. Andy drops his gun, and it goes off. And it's actually a startling scene. Because it is a very, like, high-tension moment. Because we know that Ben and Catherine are in the motel, and, like, Josie's there, and then the police show up, and then they're trying to find the one-armed man, and then, like, all of a sudden Andy drops his gun. And this kind of just, like, gets their battle fury going, because then they just, like, break down the door and burst in on the guy showering. Yeah. And he... They, it's like a, they say, put your hands up, and then he steps away from the... Like the dresser or the wardrobe. And he's only got one hand. And they both, like, put down their guns, and they're both surprised. Which... I'm like, first of all... Hawk said he specifically found this Yeah, guy. a one-armed man. A one-armed like, man. One, like, a one-armed man. It's a, that's just not that weird. Like, people just are born without or lose limbs and like i don't know it's just not that surprising to you know this <laughs> you know this is, he, you came here specifically to find this guy yeah he's not like mangled or anything like he's not a deformed he's, he's just a dude with one arm and they're yeah like, he just doesn't have uh, doesn't have an arm played by al Strobel, who is then in the rest of the series up until the new season and he's really good he's so good at this in this role <laughs> Not just by virtue of being one-armed, because obviously he sells it a little better than a two-armed actor. But no, there's just lines where I was like, he's like actually acting, even when like Kyle MacLachlan isn't. Yeah, well, and I said this in, in the scene with um, Cooper's Red Room Dream, that like the way he delivers those lines about the convenience store and um, when he's kind of like giving Coop in the dream the backstory about him and Bob... I just really like the way that he delivers those. I think he hits exactly the right notes of, like, creepy, but not, he doesn't, like, oversell it. His um, his syntax is, like, just kind of in that uncanny valley where he's not quite, like, speaking the way a normal person would. And, yeah, I, I agree. He is fantastic in this role. So Ben, I guess Ben, hearing the gunshots, decides he's going to go take a bath. And he brings a little Elvis doll with him. I was so confused and concerned. Yeah. I don't know. I love that. It's just such, like, he's so slimy. So even things like that where they shouldn't by themselves seem slimy, you're just suddenly like, ugh, what the heck? Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was, like, an Elvis-shaped, like, sponge. Oh, okay. Like a loofah? Yeah, okay. An Elvis loofah. He drops a poker chip on his way to the bath, which Catherine picks up. Yeah, and it's it's a one-eyed Jacks. It's a one-eyed Jacks poker, poker chip. chip, which I don't know. I she like kind of looks at it, so I don't know if the implication there is that she doesn't know that Ben owns one-eyed Jacks. Yeah, I don't know. She looks at it kind of suspiciously. So they are interrogating Mr. Gerard, and it seems that this guy is even different than the same person we've seen. Speaking in the visions, he seems much more mild-mannered. He doesn't seem to have any idea what's going on. When they show him the sketch of Bob, he does not know who it is. Look, he does say that he does have a best friend named Bob, 
but his name is Bob Lidecker. He's in a coma, and that's why he's been uh, visiting the hospital recently. Hawk says that everything checks out on the guy's records, and he says that, that Bob Lidecker is a veterinarian. And when Coop presses him, a little bit inappropriately, perhaps, about what happened to his arm and whether he had a tattoo on it, Mr. Gerard says that he did have a tattoo. He lost his arm in a car accident. Car accident, yeah. And the, the tattoo, he breaks down almost like sobbing and says it said Bob. Yeah. And that was a weird, like, that's a weird scene because, like, but it, like it is weird that you would have a tattoo that said Bob. Like a tattoo with your best friend's name on your arm. Okay, so was the implication that they're gay? Oh. Huh. And that's why he feels awkward about, like, that's why he's almost crying, because it's like, his lover is in a coma? Huh. I don't know, I always a little bit read it as... Yeah, I never, I never, um, I didn't, that didn't occur to me. But also, like, it's weird because the whole Gerard, Mike divide doesn't... Doesn't make sense really in the same way sense, that... Especially with, especially with such an, like, having his best friend be someone named Bob who is not Bob. Bob. And doesn't ever, it's not like Bob Lidecker is possessed by Bob. I don't think that, that never comes back or anything. Yeah, well, that was going to be my question is, like, do we ever see Bob Lidecker? I don't think so. No. Um, so that's... But weirdly, he is important to the plot. Yeah, he's because... super important to the plot. So I don't know, like, it's, I don't know if I'm supposed to, like, you know, do the Twin Peaks fan thing where I, like, piece things together there or not. I'm coming down on the side of no one thought about this. But then, like, so then the other thing that's, that's yeah, weird about Gerard slash Mike is that, like, we, we talked about this, too, a little bit before that... We'll call him Gerard Butler. <laughs> is that, like, he, I don't understand how he interfaces with the world and the Black Lodge because it's obviously different than the way Bob does, I think, because, like, spoilers, kind of, like, Bob possesses people and, like, Bob shows up, but, like, in Sarah's vision, like, he doesn't show up physically. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's just that I think Bob can be seen. I think you're right, and I think the the problem is just that I think Mike is possessing Mr. Gerard. They just didn't think about the fact that it's the only person they ever possesses. So they just have it played by the same actor. Yeah. So I think the Bob possessing people makes sense because you can only see the true manifestation of him in, like, visions. But, yeah, it's just that Mike, Mike's true manifestation and possession are both... So where, I guess kind of the question that I'm left with is, like, so Bob's, like, physical manifestation, that, or, like, his, his appearance, like, the, right, the Bob that we see in the Black Lodge and in um, the visions, like, who is that guy, right? Because if, like, and, and where did that come from? Do they have, like, do Mike and Bob have a physical form independent of, or, like, a physical appearance independent of people they have possessed well i i think that's the, that's the root of our problem is like bob bob does mike doesn't seem to yeah but i'm wonder, so i'm wondering like maybe 
they don't, and then, like, the first person they p- possessed is just, like, how they look now. I feel like you're doing the Twin Peaks fan thing. I'm trying to piece it all together. I am, yeah. Well, death of the author. I'm allowed to do whatever interpretation I want. Ah, uh, sure, yes. Le mort d'Arthur. What a funny little pun that is. Hmm? It's just that the death of the author is le mort d'Arthur, but it's it's also the death of Arthur, because it's the whole Thomas Mallory, the way that Arthurian tales... The whole idea, the whole idea, never mind, we're not going to do this. <laughs> Look at why it's a funny pun that, that, okay. French, English literary theory, post-structuralism, woo, we're obnoxious. Well, the people that are going to listen to this will be like, yeah, he couldn't even explain the actual thing, and then they're going to give, they're going to, yeah, tell me exactly what it was, and I'm pronouncing it wrong. Yeah, explain the death of the author to us on Twitter. Technically, technically, you know, he wasn't actually a post-structuralist. He was like a proto-post-structuralist. Oh, boy. Whatever. I don't even know. Getting back to uh, the episode at hand, Donna and Audrey are in the school bathroom. Yes. Yeah, so Donna's in there, like, fixing her lipstick, and then Audrey comes in to smoke, which, like, I forgot this about high school, that people would smoke in the bathrooms. Mm-hmm. People would uh, people would smoke joints in the bathroom right across from my history class. Okay, California. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't illegal then. No, still. Also, it wasn't for kids. But so people were also dicks, and they would whenever someone would, like would refill the paper towel dispensers, they would just open them up and take all of the paper towels and throw them in the trash, just to be obnoxious. But then people would be like smoking their joints, and then they throw them into the trash and the light all of the paper towels on fire so we just have trash can fires anytime anyone went to smoke in the bathroom when my mom was teaching her classroom like window was like right across like the courtyard from the bathroom like the girls bathroom and so when people would go in there to smoke and like open the window to air it out it would filter in to my mom's classroom so she would always like (laughs) come down and like bus students were smoking in the bathroom and they would be like how how did you and she like she just didn't tell them they never figured it out (laughs) high schoolers are stupid i was driving through a back alley behind mcdonald's parking lot or through mcdonald's parking lot yesterday and i just jokingly said like oh this would be a great place to smoke crack and then i turned and there was four old men with just a big bong sitting in the middle of the parking lot smoking (laughs) Which was which was an oh boy California moment. <laughs> yeah, jeez. But as Audrey smokes and Donna fixes her hair and makeup, Audrey sort of reveals some of the inside info she's got and gives Donna a little bit of an info dump of some of the things we've yeah. picked up on in the last couple episodes. I also love Audrey's line, right, when she walks in where she goes, I've been doing some research in real life. There is no algebra. Mm-hmm. And and basically, Audrey wants to get Donna to kind of investigate Laura's death with her. Mm-hmm. And I really like this. I like that they're setting up the younger group to have kind of little side quests where, they, where they're investigating too and get them a little more involved in some of the things that are going on. And I like that it's Donna and Audrey too because they've both been kind of... Rivals. Also, they both look so good in that scene. Goddamn. Yeah, I know. Oof. Uh, Norma shows up to attend Hank's parole hearing. He seems so reformed. 
I mean, he's a model citizen, obviously. Clearly. I also have, I still don't really understand what he, why he's in jail. I didn't either. His lost control of his car ran off the road and hit a guy. Yeah, a vagrant. Which seems like that's like just involuntary manslaughter. Well, that's what he's, that's what he's in there for. Okay. Norma says that at some point. But I just don't understand why his parole, like, it was just he slipped off the ice and like hit someone in his car he was going 10 miles over like yeah, yeah he's gonna get parole i don't know yeah but i mean you still have to have a hearing for it to you're determine right the, the terms of his parole this is true we spent a lot of time talking about nothing happens for the rest of the episode i know we have another page of notes I'll, I'll cut out a lot of my legal definitions but um but yeah so norma's there to say that she'll give him a job and yeah they'll live together as man and wife because that's apparently a requirement for parole. Cooper and Truman show up to the Lidecker Veterinarian Clinic. Which is next to a convenience store. It is next to a convenience store, which uh, Mike and Bob did love above, live above a convenience store. So, yeah, I, I don't know. The thing is, like, Bob Lidecker could have been possessed by Bob. That's totally possible. Him ending up in a coma a couple of days before actually also might... It hmm. kind of makes sense, hmm. right? Okay. Oh, okay, this is all coming together. Well, also because the Lidecker Clinic has on its front, under the, the name, the curious slogan, Aid to the Beast Incarnate, which I looked up. I thought maybe that was, like, some weird, like, part of some, like, Hippocratic veterinarian's oath equivalent. But, no, that is just a weird thing that they made up for the show. So, yeah. yeah, Aid to the Beast Incarnate, you know, given Bob and Mike's demonic dispositions, uh... Yeah. I think we might, we might have cracked a little nut here. Uh, I'm sure if I go on the website, everyone, yeah, some Twin Peaks fan site's going to have a million and five People have definitely this, already so. come up with this one. Yeah, We're not doing anything new here. We just do it with more style. But I, I, I think Aid of the Beast Incarnate is super, super dope veterinarian slogo. Slogo? <laughs> it's a combination slogo Logan. It's a Slo- slogan. You said slogo again. <laughs> no. I know. I said. You said it's a combination slogan logo. No, unfortunately, it was worse. I said slogan Logan. I was trying to say logo slogan. This is a mess. <laughs> hashtag slogan. Yeah, hashtag slogan. Tweet at us on Twitter. We're at Northern Live Pod. <laughs> if you listen to us, please, please actually tweet at us because I have no idea. The cast box analytics are, like, not super helpful, so I have no idea how many people actually listen to it or if it's just showing up somebody being subscri- subscribed because that's where I get the RSS feed for iTunes. So You can even tweet at us, like, hey, this episode's pretty bad. <laughs> You're doing bad, Matt. But, yeah, there's a fat cat on the steps of the clinic. That's excellent. And when they go in, they show the picture of Bob to the receptionist, the receptionist and she says, that's not Dr. Lidacker, but she does confirm that they do treat birds there. Yeah. And while Coop is talking to Truman, a llama walks between them. They got to stare down. They s- yeah, there's that great moment where they, like, kind of, like, the llama, like, looks at Coop, which, so I guess I was reading something that um, Kyle McLaughlin had talked about with that scene where, obviously, that wasn't planned. Like, they didn't instruct the llama to do that. It just happened to kind of, like, bump up against him and then look at him like that and I guess like everybody on set was trying so hard not to laugh including Kyle because he he knew that that was going to be like such a good shot as long as he didn't ruin it by like laughing 
Yeah, well, you can see you can see uh, Sheriff Truman Michael Onkeen. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah, you can see him really trying not to laugh. Yeah. Um, it snorts a little bit. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the reasons to watch the show. Is that uh, mama scene? Honestly, though. Yeah. And basically, they they need, they need to get all the bird files. Yeah. So they uh, get all the all the files. We cut to Shelly and Bobby, who are, I guess, going at it on her lunch break? I'm confused, because she said she has to get back to the diner. But, like... Her work schedule doesn't make sense. Her work schedule doesn't make any sense to me, and that's not how breaks in a restaurant work. You don't get to, like, go home. But Bobby Bobby lies to Shelly about stuff that's going on with Leo and... Well, to be fair, he doesn't, he doesn't lie. He does tell her what's going on. He just doesn't say that he's also involved. Okay, fair, fair. A lie of omission. Yeah, he says that Leo and Jacques Renault have been smuggling drugs, which is totally true. But then he says that they're selling them at the high school. And Bobby is selling them at the high school. Um, and and Shelly seems, like, very naive to this. You would think that she'd be... Yeah, well, she says that she knew Leo was mixed up in something. But she, yeah, doesn't seem to have any idea, like, what it was. And so she shows Bobby the bloody jacket, which she has, apparently Leo has her stitch in his initials into everything he owns. Yeah. Which is a really bad move for a professional criminal. And uh, so Bobby takes the jacket. He's very excited by this jacket. And Shelly does sexy gunplay in lingerie. Why is she wearing lingerie under her waitressing uniform? It's a look. I get, yeah, but it just seems like super impractical. Bobby's shirt just says "dick" on it. What, also, which, what is Bobby's shirt? Why? Like that also looks like a uniform shirt, but I don't understand. Oh, it's his bowling uniform. <laughs> yeah, Bobby's on the bowling team. Yeah. It's a big subplot in season two. You don't remember that? You joke, but it could. You know what? Yeah, I know it really could be. There's a whole thing about like what Nadine like wanted to be a cheerleader and stuff. So yeah, so. it's not far. I'm not far off. No, you're really not. So I don't know why his shirt says "dick," but it's funny. <laughs> it made me laugh. Yeah. So then we go back to the police station where Lucy is explaining, like over the intercom, that all the patients are in alphabetical order by name of animal. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That actually, that thing that happens a little bit later because this is this is we cut we we sh- we have Coop oh, you're telling right. Lucy that she has she to has go, to go through, through the and files, find them. Yeah. while Coop takes Andy down to the shooting range to atone for his his gun drop earlier in the episode. You spelled misogyny wrong. Did I? Yeah, it's. A- <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> Whoops. I fixed it. Um, yeah, so they go down to through like the storage closet for all the Christmas decorations. Yeah, the Christmas decorations. I love that detail. That's so funny. Yeah, well, it it feels very accurate to like how a police station that size would work, where like it's mm-hmm. big enough that they have a shooting range, but small enough that they store their Christmas decorations in it. Andy doesn't shoot so well, so Coop prescribes him. Lots of practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we got a dramatic scene of Coop saying that once once he knew someone who taught him the way of compassion or some stuff. Commitment, commitment. Yeah, commitment. And then Truman and Coop like turn simultaneously and fire a bunch of shots downrange. And it is... Well, and then there's all that stuff before so that with like when Coop's talking about the Andy-Lucy drama and then... Oh, yeah. I skipped over my note about quaint misogyny. Yeah, some some good good old 90s sexism there where 
women were drawn from a different set of blueprints. Don't you know? Women Cooper. are so complicated. Us men, we just yeah. shoot guns and fuck. It is really weird. It is that that's exactly what it is. Because like even then when like you go from like that good old women are just different thing to like Hawk's weird mystical like one woman can make you fly like an eagle. The other can make you race like a horse. Yeah, or whatever. The other can like... make you fold into a small ball like an armadillo. That's not actually in it, I don't think. So then we go to, like, you know, Hawk being like, women are, are a mystical other thing. And it's like, I just, guys. <laughs> no, but I love that scene because, because I heard it and I was like, oh, man, like, this is some, like, really, like, it's kind of stereotypical, bordering on not so okay, like, sort of Native American coding here. But then, <laughs> then he totally deflates it by being like, I wrote that for my girlfriend. Coop <laughs> says, oh, is she a local gal? And Diane Shapiro, PhD. Brandeis. And Coop's like, Whew! just gives a, a whistle of appreciation, I guess for the PhD. So in this case, like, okay. Yeah, I'm glad that I'm glad they... Hawk has an educated PhD girlfriend. And people are impressed by her, her education. So, you know. Yeah, good for her. So we cut back to the diner. We actually get a little bit, we had talked previously about how we didn't quite get why Shelley would have married Leo, and they need a little bit of backstory of him being, like, a cool, seemingly nice guy in a fun car, and then it turns out it sucks. And Shelley pretty much gives that exact... Well, that's, I I remembered, I remembered that this scene came in at some point, okay. but I didn't remember, like, exactly where. But yeah, it is a little bit more in-depth than I thought it was. And And Norma gives a bit of her dilemma about Hank and Ed. Meanwhile, also in the diner is James, and he calls Donna, uh, while Doc Hayward is fussing with diet lasagna for a church potluck. Who the heck ever heard of diet lasagna? I love Doc Hayward so much. And I love, I love that, like, he's, like, calling for Donna to help, and she's like, hang on, like, I'm, I'm on the phone with, with James, and he's like, well, tell him to get over here. I need all the help I can get. <laughs> he's just like... Uh, good guy, Doc Hayward. I, I love Doc Hayward so much. Such a teddy bear. Yeah. I guess they decided they need to see each other because Donna's got stuff to tell James that she learned from Audrey. But James sees cousin Maddie mm-hmm. and goes over to her and meets her. They're cousins. They, she had always visited. They'd always been told they looked super similar. And she's there taking care of Leland and Sarah. She shouldn't be. No, she shouldn't. Like, that's, I don't like, like, James had a good reaction to her. Mm-hmm. But, like, I'm sorry, if you're going to be there, you have to be, like, very aware that people are going to be upset by the fact that you look just like the dead person. Yeah, no, that's fair. Especially, like, I don't know, her parents. Yeah, it's weird, but it is. <laughs> it does kind of go back to that, like, point that, like, the Palmers don't really have anyone in Twin Peaks mm. to take care of them. But, yeah, no, you're right. I Also, is she the same age as Laura? She has to be older, right, because otherwise she would be in school. Yeah, I mean, I guess she's older, but I don't know. I mean, she's obviously supposed to be a weird character that is supposed to be off-putting, and, like, she shouldn't really be here. So Hank gets his parole. Norma gets that call in the diner. Yeah, and then decides that she and Shelly are going to have a spa day. Yeah, they're going to hit the town. They're going to be the best-dressed ladies in Twin Peaks, the double R babes. So, you know, they both want to try and escape their unpleasant home lives for a bit yeah audrey scams a stationary bike riding ben horn 
into giving her a position at the perfume counter so that she can sort of... All I could think of with the this scene was those, like, Peloton commercials where people are, like, riding their exercise bike in, like, the most impractical place. <laughs> because that is exactly what's happening here, like... I love, I love their back and forth, her coming in and just doing, like, the pouty, weepy face and Ben Horvath. I want to, I want to believe you, Audrey. Yeah. Um, they're so funny. She, she lays it on so thick. She keeps going with that, like, you know, kind of pouty, like, melodramatic. Oh, Daddy. Oh, oh Daddy, we have to think of the future, Daddy. <laughs> I don't know don't why you, you know have Daddy? that accent, but. Mm, Daddy Horn. Ew. Uh. Who's the biggest daddy in Twin Peaks? Nope. We're not having this conversation. Not having this conversation? All right. Ben gets a phone call from someone, and he ushers Audrey out of the room, and he says to meet by the river. Sounds like some, some covert business. Coop, Andy, and Truman are going through bird files because, as you did mention, uh, Lucy eventually does call down and says that, oh, no. They're in alphabetical order by aunt, like by pet name, which is the kind of, like, yeah, which is exactly the kind of ridiculous thing that, like, I could see, like, kind of a, a small, like, veterinary mm-hmm. clinic that, like, kind of serves, you know, everything. And, like, they do all the animals. They can't really specialize. Like, I could absolutely see that happen. Yeah, because well, they're going to they're gonna know the names of the animals that come in. They're, oh, look, it's little, little Waldo's in again. How do you feel, you know? like. So, yeah, they have to go through all of them because they can't just, like, pull out the birds. <laughs> but Gordon Cole calls down for the second time and tells them that the bird bites were... A minor bird or a parrot, and uh, wouldn't luck have it. Uh, Andy pulls out a file that says that uh, there's a minor bird, oh, named Waldo, that Jacques Renault owned. Obviously, that's yeah, a connection. Yes, which Coop Coop points it out. He says anytime there's a coincidence. Anytime, yeah, the two things. It's a coincidence. At the same time, it's like two <laughs> two related things happen at the same time because like then you have to pay attention. I don't know. It just seems like he's just following a lead here. <laughs> It's like, yeah, Coop, no shit. <laughs> you really Occam Razor that one. Occam's Razor. When you get a lead in a case, you should pay attention to it, Coop. Like Two things seem to corroborate each other. As soon as he goes like into all of his Tibetan mysticism stuff, then he like goes just entirely into it, yeah. Like he's just all of a sudden like that's his whole thing. Like everything is mystical. And it's like, well, no, Coop, this is just a lead in a case. <laughs> going off this lead, they are going to go raid Jacques Renault's like apartment. And there's a really, really, really funny camera bit where they're just focusing on two people like playing a tennis game, and then it pans super quickly over to a close-up of Coop staring at the apartment, and it's so corny. But it's like, I mean, it's it's a joke. It's a like it's a it's almost like it's just a punchline made with camera movements, which I really like. I'm a sucker for when people can make comedic cinematography. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just it cracked me up. They raid the apartment. So Bobby is in Jacques Renault's apartment. Planting the jacket. Which, like, obviously what he's doing is super sketchy. It does kind of help the police, though, because, like, yeah, Leo and Jacques Renault are involved. Bobby kind of helps the police here in a weird way. He just does it in a way with it that's, like, trying to not implicate himself. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's a... Uh, Which is fair. He's watching out for number one. But I, I guess they think... Because Bobby jumps out a window to escape, and they think that it's Jacques Renault. But I'm like, have you seen Jacques Renault? Or Bobby. Or Bobby. Like, yeah, they are not. They do not have the same build. Yeah. Jacques Renault can't run Jacques, that fast. Yeah, Jacques Renault can't jump out a window and run that fast. No way. We cut down to the river. Ben Horn mentioned, and it looks like Ben and Leo 
are working together. Uh, ben is paying Leo to burn down the mill. Yeah, and then and Ben says something about Hank in this scene, right? He like says that Hank like referred him to Leo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hank is brought up. Ben expresses frustration about uh, Leo working in the sort of the drug trade with uh, Jacques and Bernard Renault, who at the beginning of the episode, Truman says made bail. He says that Bernard got off on bail, and then at the end of the episode, Leo says. Yeah, Bernard got off on bail. That's his body right there. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's... And, it's, and, he, and he killed him. Yeah. It's a relatively coherent arc for this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get Ben's... I liked his line. He says that he's working with glue-sniffing squish heads. Yeah, which given what we've seen of Bernard... <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. All. So, yeah, basically they're trying to make it look like arson... Ben gives him half the money up front and half on uh, half on delivery elsewhere in in dark woods. Donna and James have somehow found their way back to the exact rock under which they buried Laura's necklace, and they're really upset that it's not there. And my question was like, maybe it's just a maybe you have the wrong rock. Yeah, well, they, I so I do like this too. That like I think it is kind of interesting that Donna like at the beginning of the episode heard Sarah Palmer say, "Oh no, the locket's missing." And being, like, a high school kid, she thinks, oh, I got to go, like, make sure it's still there. And it's not. Yeah. No, I mean, it is it is weird that they were able to find the, like, exact same spot. But it is, that yeah, is no, clearly. I mean, that makes, it makes no sense. But it that is clearly what it is, right? Like, they clearly are in the exact same spot. Yeah. And then, yeah, they talk, Donna talks a little bit about Sarah's visions and said that Sarah's kind of, like, Laura used to say that her mother was kind of spooky, which was interesting. Yeah, so apparently both Sarah and Laura have had visions before. Yeah, well, so, and I kind of wondered, like, what Laura's visions were. Yeah, are these the dreams she has in Fire Walk With Me, or are these, is this something we just never hear about? In which case, that's kind of an important detail that's left by the wayside. Well, and, and the stuff with Sarah, too, is obviously also really important, because that keeps coming back. But yeah, and then, God, like, for two seconds, I didn't hate this subplot. And then Donna starts talking about how, like, they're the only ones, they're that, the really only ones that really loved Laura. So the, the police the police can't help. Which, like, I kind of understand what she's saying. I mean, it's like a dumb high school thing to say, but I kind of understand what she's saying, that, like, the police are treating this like what it is, which is, you know, a murder investigation, a potential serial killer, a high school kid who was addicted to cocaine, like... You just gave a really good, like three-line netflix summary of the show yeah so like i i kind of get what donna means in that like the police don't care and so maybe because of that the police are going to miss something because they don't understand like laura's motivations donna says something about how like we have to do this for us not for her for maybe and for her but like for the sake of their love i'm it's such a weird it's the kinkiest foreplay i ever heard of i don't like it as it starts to starts to wrap up, Truman calls Josie uh, to ask why she was staking out the Timber Falls Motel. She kind of dodges the question, and Pete he invites her to go fishing. Yeah, in a mixed doubles fishing tournament. I I I mean, I still just love Pete's character too. Like he just you know he just wants somebody to go fishing with him, and his wife obviously sucks. So <laughs> Catherine's not gonna go. What if Catherine's, like, really, really good at fishing, and that's, like, a lot of where their... Their attention comes from, yeah. 
she shows him up. Yeah, he thought he was hot shit, and then, yeah, she shows him up all the time. And... I, I support it. I like this backstory for them. Nothing else about their plot lines ever make any <laughs> sense, so why not? Uh, and then to wrap up this episode of scheming, we have one final scheme seed where uh, Josie pulls open an envelope and it has a sketch of a domino. It's a, a domino, really detailed was... sketch. It's a good sketch. It's I mean, really good. Well, so it was, it was the domino that Hank was playing with during his uh, parole hearing, and she then immediately gets a call from him asking whether he whether she got the domino. She's like, yeah, I got it. And he's like, cool. And then that's the end of the episode. Yeah, and then as he's, like, standing there, like, playing with the domino again and, like, yeah, sucking, like sucking it. Yeah, he's, like, sucking it. That's not mm-hmm. hygienic. I hate him. <laughs> he's such a, like, gross, skeezy character. And he's just, he's, like... The other gross skeezy characters are at least kind of fun. Yeah, when you have like Leo and Jacques and, and the Horn. other Renault and Ben Horn, it's just, it gets much. If he was the only character that was like that, like, fine. I, he probably wouldn't bother me so much. But like, the other characters that they make, I mean, Leo's also not great, but like, the other characters that they make creepy and evil, they also make at least interesting to watch. And Hank is just not. <laughs> yeah, Hank Hank seems like a subplot they were saving for later. Like, as something that they would just keep in the background of, like, oh, Norma's evil husband. He's He might get parole. He might not. We don't know. But, yeah, he shows up early on. Yeah. I guess, again, that, that has been kind of the theme of this whole podcast. It's like, I didn't, I didn't remember this happening so soon in the show. It's because I think season one is a lot shorter than I always remember it is. But yeah, so wrap up. Well, so my, my final fun fact really quick is that the scene where Josie picks up the phone to talk to him is a very, very intense Dutch angle. Apparently, this is the only Dutch angle they allowed in the show. Tim Hunter wanted to do this Dutch angle, and uh, Mark Frost and David Lynch had otherwise, except for him, had forbidden the use of Dutch, Dutch angles in the show. So. Hmm. So wrap up, yeah. Yeah, no, so I was just going to say, I, this episode really felt to me like an episode that was getting them from one episode to the next. Mm-hmm. Things happen. There's some things introduced that we didn't get before. We get some backstory. We get, we talk about, like, nothing happening. And I, you know, it's not that nothing happens, but it is that this is just really clearly a transition episode. It's not useless. Like, all of these plot lines needed to advance. And we get, you know, the one-armed man. And I, I remember, like, being a lot more invested in this episode the first time I watched it because the stuff with the one-armed man and the minor bird and Leo and Jacques Renault is all like I wanted to know what happened so I was I was like kind of grabbing at those developments and like kind of eating them up having watched it a couple times this episode doesn't really it's really like a plot advancing one and so if you mm-hmm. already know kind of the major threads then it's it's not as interesting yeah well it's especially because I think we talked about last time that episode four really brought a lot of subplots from the previous episodes together and it was a very explosive episode i mean there's like actual there's a lot of fights in it a lot of conflict so sort of after that i i I know why they had to have another sort of okay we're we're bringing it back and this is this this is the second half of the season because i think it is eight eight episodes so they're sort of they're regrouping for that next yeah and sort of setting up setting up where they're going next and yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's again, it's necessary. And I think maybe that's why there are those, like, kind of, those moments towards the end where it, it kind of touches back on things at the beginning because the arc of this episode 
it seems like they really had to like make sure there was one because otherwise there wouldn't have been one that kind of developed naturally because this is just getting us from one point to the next and that's fine i don't think that makes it a bad episode but it it just definitely changes my experience of it is just very different watching Mm -hmm. it for the third time you know this one doesn't excite me as much on the third watch of it i liked it fine when i watched it the first time there there is a certain like coherency to what is sort of a nameless episode with the way that yeah they set up things at the beginning and it's and it comes back at the end um i really like that that's that's some tight writing and i like i like their setting up the the james and donna and maddie and audrey investigative stuff that's very sort of high school hijinks yeah it goes back to the the high school stuff that you talked about liking a lot in the pilot that they don't yeah come back to until this this point yeah so that's that's stuff that i do enjoy i I don't think it makes for a super interesting episode i keep mentioning things that i find funny in this my biggest takeaway now watching these earlier episodes is the humor that i find in it Mm -hmm. and humor humor that i don't think seems necessarily intentional but i do think is a lot of the time yeah i was sort of i remember being bothered on like my second rewatch of this show by like this is just really goofy and it's not the sort of weird dark surreal craziness that i want it to be but that you know that happens in the last season and i am appreciating a lot more of just like this is very funny in even small details like yeah there's just like camera work jokes almost and then like the scene with the llama where it's just kind of like yeah there's like these these humorous moments i like those too and yeah even like audrey and ben horn i was like this is like this is so much but i think it's funny i mean they're hamming it it's yeah you know, yeah they're chewing scenery on purpose it's the it's i'm sure that was the direction they were given and i like it i like it a lot more all right well i think that's about does it yeah we got some minor birds to investigate tweet tweet at us if you actually listen to this or if you're a minor bird at northern live pod hashtag slogo hashtag slogo